Good morning, Open Door. I can imagine you all answering me back as you would if we could all be here together this morning. Oh, how I wish we could. In fact, it is not even this morning for me. This is pre-recorded and then will be streamed live at the appropriate time. But to accommodate your situation, I'll continue to refer to it as this, as this morning, if that's okay with you. I assume it is since I can't hear you. My message this morning is titled, Working Out What God is Working In. And it is taken from Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. If you were all here with me, I would ask you to stand with me and we would read aloud together this passage. So instead, I will read it aloud and you, if you can, can read along with me. <clears throat> so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Let's pray together quickly. <clears throat> Gracious Father, we do pray that you will take these words by your Holy Spirit and take them into our hearts, into our minds, that we might not only think your thoughts after you, but indeed do the, the deeds that we see you doing and feel you doing inside of us. We thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. My thesis this morning is that Paul exerts, exhorts the Philippians and us to live out every day that which God is working in, that is salvation, blameless lifestyle, and a life of glory and joy together in and with Christ. I'm going to say that again. <clears throat> Paul exhorts the Philippians and us to live out every day that which God is working in, that is salvation, blameless lifestyle, and life of glory and joy together in and with Christ. The first point in the outline is the obedience he urges in them is not to him, but to the Father. As we saw when we read the passage, Paul talks to his audience, which telling them it was obvious when he was with them, present with them, that they were obedient, and he says that they should be even more so in his absence from them. <clears throat> you know, I used to read this as though he were saying, I know you were obedient to my instructions when I was there, and I want you to be even more so now that I'm in prison in Rome. But I do not believe that's the sense here. Remember back in verses 5 through 9, which Caleb took us through last week, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus 
who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. <clears throat> being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's just told them right before this not to do anything from an attitude of selfishness or empty conceit. And he illustrates that by urging them to do what Christ did, to be like him, who completely submitted himself to the Father and became obedient to him unto death, even death on a cross. So in today's verses, when he talks about their obedience, he's harking back, I believe, to Christ's absolute obedience to the will of the Father, abandoning his own interests and trusting the Father completely to have his back. And now he's urging them to do the same thing. So he, the obedience that he's telling them to do is not to him but to the Father. <clears throat> the second point in the outline is the working out of salvation is accompanied by fear and trembling. Paul tells them to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What an amazing thing to say, isn't it? Now the word work here, work out, is actually an intensified form of a verb which means to labor, to work hard at something, to accomplish it, to work out. It's very similar to the idea we have in English of working out. When I go to the gym, I work out. I once had a trainer who said to me, of course it's hard. It's a workout, not a fun out. So that's the, the concept here. Paul is saying, yes, you have to work hard at accomplishing that which is going on inside of you, which we'll look at in just a moment. So working, he says, with fear and trembling. <clears throat> the word fear here, uh, which we'll, I guess we'll get to that in a moment, I'm sorry. The, the, the first thing we want to look at the words that he uses. He uses the word salvation, which is an, a really interesting word. Uh, the Greek word is soteria. If you study theology and you, you'll hear of soteriology, that's the, the theology of salvation. That's where this comes from. It means deliverance or salvation, rescue even. It's ultimately related to a verb Sozo, which means to deliver, to save, or to rescue. By the way, you'll notice in, in this, on the slides, that when, sometimes when I give you information about the original words, I'll put in there in parentheses a Strong's number. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with those or not, but it's worth a moment to tell you about that. <clears throat> the words uh, with those numbers were actually uh, put together by a man named James Strong. He was the first one to do an exhaustive concordance of the King James Bible. And this was back in the days before computers, so he did it all by hand. And I mean every word, every A and the of, to, and all of that. He did it all by hand. And in doing so, he assigned the original language underlying the text numbers. <clears throat> in the New Testament, the numbers begin with a G for Greek. In the Old Testament, they begin with an H for Hebrew. And there are dozens, and I do mean dozens, of uh, Bible study tools that are keyed to those numbers. 
So with that number, you can do a very extensive word study without knowing anything about the original language necessarily, but that's why I include them, because they're kind of handy information to have. Okay, so that's salvation, being rescued. The second thing Paul talks about here is fear and trembling. The word fear is the normal word, phobos. It comes from a verb, phobomai, which means to take to flight because of fear. Not just being afraid, but to actually run away from fear, with fear. And the idea of this word is fear. It's something that can terrify you. And the next word is traumas. It's the word meaning to tremble or to quake. And you might think, well, that's kind of an odd thing to be associated with salvation. It may seem different <clears throat> for us to think about that, but don't forget in Hebrews, I'm sorry, in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That is just one of many Old Testament passages tying the fear of the Lord together with wisdom. It is true, as the New Testament says, that perfect love casts out fear, but we should never forget that when we approach the throne of grace, we are also approaching the one of whom Isaiah wrote, that the seraphim fly back and forth in his presence, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So as we approach the thrice holy God, we approach him only because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ the penalty that he paid for our sins on the cross. And we should never forget that we are in the presence of the awesome and fearful, the holy God, even though we are there as his children. So it's, it's something worth thinking about. The third major point in the outline is that God is the one working in us. After having just told the Philippians that they are to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. He now says, for, that means because, it is God who is at work in you. In other words, God is working in us. And the first point I have under that is that his work works. <laughs> the, the word here for work is an entirely different word than he used when he was telling them to work out their salvation. Here, he uses the word energeo, which means to work or to, to uh, energize something, to, to cause something to be. And that's, you might recognize that as the basis of our word energy, which it is. So God is the energizing impetus in us to work. This word in the New Testament is only used of supernatural work. It carries the idea of effective working. That is, it accomplishes that which it sets out to do. So the upshot of that is that he is the energy that enables us to accomplish the working out which Paul mentioned in the previous clause. So his work works. But secondly, he both wills and works in us. This idea is reinforced by what Paul says, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That new man that Christ created in us includes a new will. We can now actually want to do what is right. 
I'm sure that none of you have ever had this experience, but there have been times in my life when I really didn't want to do what God wanted me to do. And other times when I did really want to do what God wanted me to do. That's a perfect illustration of that conflict we have between the old man and the new man. We still have in us that sin, and that includes the will to sin. But God is working in us to give us the will to do what he wants us to do. So we really can want to do the right thing. We just have to trust him for that. That new man working in us by the Spirit of God. I have that new man in Christ because God is at work in me, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Without God working in us, there is no way we can work out that salvation. The next thing Paul says about that is that his work brings him pleasure. Doesn't it strike you as an amazing thing that when I allow the energizing Spirit of God to will and work in me, and I thus work out that salvation he has already wrought in me, that it brings good pleasure to God the Father. That's what he says. And his good pleasure becomes my pleasure as I enjoy the presence in, his presence in and with me. I want you to look with me for just a moment to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It is God's good pleasure that throughout eternity the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus will be shown to the whole cosmos, the whole of creation. In other words, throughout eternity, we will be the proof to all of creation that God is good. We will be the trophies of his grace demonstrated for all to see forever. How's that for amazing? So, God is working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The next thing we see is what this new lifestyle looks like. Our worked out lifestyle, how, how does it work? What does it look like? What are its characteristics? Well, the first thing he tells us about it is that there's no grumbling or disputing. <laughs> I love the, the word that's used here for grumbling. It's, it's a really interesting word. Something, some people think that it's onomatopoetic. That is that it sort of imitates what it is. The word is gongusmas. And it kind of sounds like grumbling, doesn't it? Kind of has that flavor to it. it. Means muttering or murmuring, grumbling under your breath, kind of a thing. The second word, disputings, is really the word that just means like an inner dialogue, a reasoning that goes on. But the structure of the word indicates that there's a separation involved, that we can get to the point where we get so nitpicky in our discussions with each other that it separates us. And Paul says that is not what the new life in Christ 
is about. I can hardly think of any more thing more adequately describing what I see everywhere in our society today. Grumbling, muttering, separations caused by differences of opinion or reasoning. Paul says that our new life in Christ, our worked out salvation, is not to be characterized by those things. And the closer we get to him, the more we allow his working in us to be worked out in our lives, the less those things will mark our lives and our interactions. The next characteristic of that life, he says, is blamelessness and innocence. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will show yourselves, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. The word that is translated here, so that, means with the result that. Don't grumble or pettily dispute with each other, so that you actually become blamelessness and innocence. The word blameless means without blame, without fault. The word that's used here for um, innocence really means unadulterated, unmixed, pure. And, and there's actually two other things that Paul says that I didn't put in the outline. He calls us children of God, which is pretty impressive by itself, isn't it? And then he says that we're also to be without blemish. The word there means without disgrace. There's nothing in our lives that would bring disgrace on the name of Christ when we're living out this life that he's working in us. If those things sound familiar, it is because they all describe Christ, don't they? He is blameless, he is innocent, he's the Son of God, and he's without disgrace, he's without fault. And I think it's interesting, too, that Paul talks about doing all this in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. It makes me wonder if Paul thought the generation he lived in was crooked and perverse, what would he say about ours? Oh, pretty amazing thought, isn't it? Okay, the next thing that he characterizes this new lifestyle is that we are lights in the world holding forth the word of life. He says that we are blameless, innocent, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom, whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. There have been actual experiments demonstrating that a single candle flame is visible under normal conditions, that is without too much light pollution, is visible at night as much as 1.6 miles away. A single flame. That's 2.575 kilometers for those of you that are into the metric system. But anyway, uh, the darker it is, the further away that light can be seen and will be noticed. When I was a teenager, my family visited Carlsbad Caverns in the southeastern part of New Mexico. During our guided tour in the caverns, they did something that I'm told they no longer do, probably because of some lawsuit, but anyway. Uh, they turned out all the internal lighting. And we were plunged into a darkness that was practically palpable. 
I put my hand in front of my face and although I could feel the heat of it, I had no visual indication that my hand was there. It was dark. It was really dark. And then the guide opened a cigarette lighter and flicked it and we saw a little flame. And I was amazed that I could, as a result of that tiny flame in that big cavern, I could see details of information about the faces and forms of the people that were in that cavern. And I thought, what an astounding thing that is. The darker it is, the more the light is seen, the more it's noticed. Our culture today is that dark. And the darker the environment, the brighter the light appears. What an opportunity we have as the children of God, as lights in the world. And Paul reminds us that we don't just hold forth some word, we hold forth the word of life, don't we? We have the news about Jesus and what he did for us and what he can do for the world. That's what we're holding out as the light in the world. The next thing he tells, tells us about this new life in Christ is that we are boasting together in Christ's work. That might seem a little odd, given that he earlier talked about not, not doing anything from empty, selfishness or empty conceit, but it's not. Back there he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Here he says, so then the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. He was talking before about selfish interests and empty conceit. Here he's talking about boasting in what Christ has done and is doing. It's okay to boast about what God is doing. It's not okay to boast in order to bring honor or praise to ourselves, to boost our own ego. That's a big difference. And the last characteristic he gives us of this new life is joy, both internally and with our family in Christ. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. He says, even if my very life is poured out before the Lord's altar until it's all gone, it's worth it because it results in serving and strengthening your faith. God graciously gives us the opportunity to pour out our very lives in the service of each other, knowing that nothing is lost in that transaction. Indeed, a great deal is gained because if not, it only brings joy in that service, and it brings joy not only to us as we do it, but to the entire family of God. It's really a pretty amazing thing. It reminds me of the very end of Psalm 16, one of my favorite psalms. Verse 11 of Psalm 16, David says, You will make known to me the path of life. There's that reference to life, just as Paul talked about the word of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. So you and I, as we experience 
this new life, as we show the world what he's like, we bring joy to ourselves and to each other, and we give pleasure to God. And we can enjoy that pleasure with him because he's with us, he's in us. Someday we'll enjoy it in person with him. We'll be able to see him, just as I would like to see all of you right now, and I can't. So all of that brings us back to our thesis. Paul exhorts the Philippians and us to live out every day that which God is working in, that is, salvation, blameless lifestyle, and a life of glory and joy together in and with Christ. We have an amazing God, and he offers us not only joy and fun together as the body of Christ, but that's going to go on forever in his presence. So it's a win-win thing for us, isn't it? No matter what, we're going to be together with him forever. And we will enjoy the pleasures from his right hand forever. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of it. Thank you for the promise of it. And thank you most of all for the life that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to live out that life, to work it out as you are working it into us. In Jesus' name, amen.